sense to ask someone who's been offering that for over a hundred years? We're Union Bank, and just like your business, we're local. Now, we know what you're thinking, but being a hundred years old hasn't slowed us down a bit. In fact, it's taught us how to get things done. It's the reason why we're so nimble and know how to make business loans happen on a local level. When you call Union Bank, you get a real person with real answers. Full service, local banking, with someone who actually knows what it's like doing business here. Plus, it doesn't hurt that our main offices are nearby and with doors wide open, like a true local. With an array of services to fit your needs, no one works harder to make your business go far. Union Bank. Stay local. Go far. Visit us at your local branch or go to ublocal.com. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. Broadcasting live this morning at the Davis Center at the University of Vermont, the annual conference of Vermont businesses for social responsibility. We're going to talk a little solar right now. Let's give a nice warm radio Vermont welcome. Chad Farrell is with Encore Redevelopment, and David Gutman is with Dinsey, Knapp, and McAndrew. Uh, Chad, what what is uh, Encore Redevelopment? Sure. Um, yes. Uh, good morning, Mark, and uh, thanks for having me on. Uh, Encore Redevelopment is a, um, a project development company based in Burlington, um, focused on renewable energy development, uh, with a timely focus on solar PV, uh, mainly at the commercial scale. Uh, um, so we uh, provide turnkey services to businesses, um, schools, hospitals, uh, um, larger scale users of electricity looking to go. Uh, solar as a means of addressing their long-term electrical costs and achieving some savings there and while at the same time uh, utilizing a uh, sustainable and environment environmentally friendly energy source. What does a turnkey operation mean? Uh, means that we would handle the development of the project, the design, the permitting, uh, and the construction. Full from concept to commissioning, uh, we would handle all of the, the nuts and bolts associated with all of the the various uh, players that are involved and all of the various elements that are involved in getting a project, uh, you know, from the concept stage all the way through to a commissioned and uh, producing facility. Your business must be going through the roof. Um, we're pretty busy right now, absolutely. Um, there's a lot of uh, opportunity out there for sure. Um, but, you know, uh, there are, you know, it, it's uh, becoming more and more competitive. It's becoming more and more um, price uh, price sensitive. Um, so, yeah, I think, uh, you know, but it is it is a great market to be in. And Vermont uh, is one of the leading states in the country um, for this type of work. And uh, so we're uh, very happy to be here and, and having a business in Vermont. And the cost is going down? The cost is going down. Yeah, all of the incentives have uh, have have done their have done their job, and um, we have a, a, a robust market at this point, um, <clears throat> and uh, that means that uh, a lot of the costs have come down, and that is um, full full suite. Um, that's on the development side, um, that is also on the equipment side, and that's on the construction side. So um, yeah, it's a it's a it's a it's a maturing market. Um, you know, we're not quite there yet, but um, it is an evolving and um, rapidly maturing market. How far is your reach? Uh, we're we're focused on Vermont at this point. Um, you know, there are some other states in in the region that are uh, that are also attractive. Uh, Massachusetts and New York come to mind. Um, um, but uh, we are pretty well focused on Vermont at this point. Um, 
utilizing our you know our contacts and um, and uh, and our track record to deliver projects. Why would Massachusetts and New York be attractive, and say New Hampshire and Maine wouldn't be? Um, just the policies and the procedures, and um, and some of the regulatory um, the the regulatory environment in, in in certain states is is more favorable than others, and that is a measure of the you know the general will of the population to support. Um, uh, you know, a, a new market like renewable energy. Hmm. Uh, Maine isn't friendly for solar? Uh, Maine is fairly friendly, a little bit more in the wind energy space in Maine, a lot of it offshore, um, and then there are some in um, some uh, onshore wind farms up in the northern counties, um, a little bit less so for solar, Okay. Um, but but certainly, um, yes, they, they've been pretty active in the, in the overall renewable energy space. That includes hydro and some biomass facilities as well. Um, solar is not quite as hot in Maine as it is here, Connecticut, Massachusetts, New York. Mm-hmm. So what do you think about this recent discussion here in Vermont about siting and, and whether there should be a more definitive policy and what sort of regulation that should go under? Sure. You know, um, the industry has uh, been actively at the table um, throughout the legislative process uh, this session. Uh, there has been a lot of discussion around um, siting and screening. And uh, I think we're all in agreement that uh, we need to get this right. Um, you know, we're moving towards uh, uh, an, an, an electrified society. We're moving towards um, a more distributed generation um, type model for our electric uh, generation. And that means that we're going to have more of these smaller projects throughout um, the state and throughout the region, throughout the country. Um, so we need to make sure we get it right. And I think. You know, with success comes the need to tweak and and, and modify and improve regulation, and that's exactly what's been going on. Mm-hmm. David Gertman's with Dinsey, Knapp, and McAndrew. Why would anybody need a lawyer on any of this stuff, David? Morning, Mark. Thanks for having me. Um, well, I wear two hats here. I'm both uh, a lawyer, and I service the solar industry and help uh businesses like Chad and others uh, figure out how to enter the market and um power their business by solar, but uh, the other hat is that I'm also a, uh, a partner in a law firm that is powered by solar, and we own our own array on our building, and Chad helped us uh, permit and develop and construct that, so um, we are both a, a user and an active service provider in the industry. So tell me about the array you have at your office. Uh, we have a 16.5 kilowatt rooftop array. Uh, it provides the power to uh, at least partially support the the our, our law firm's business and uh we went through a, a pretty uh comprehensive process with chad and encore um to figure out and design a, a rooftop array our, our building is on the waterfront in burlington um so and it's a historic old building and uh we were able to uh figure out the right size and and uh type of array that would be able to be placed there in that environment and it's worked successfully it's been in commission for over a year now did you need a lawyer to go through the regulatory process well luckily we had some in-house capability there because uh is there is the regulatory process too big a hassle here in vermont or not um i think uh from what i hear nationally i think the regulatory process is um is 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 what it needs to be to um get these projects built and put in place but at the same time balance the needs of um the 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 population to ensure that they're built appropriately okay 
All right. <laughs> that that sounded like a lawyer answer. Sorry. <laughs> so the, the, um, one of the things that we want to talk about is that there's some deadlines coming up here, so, and people kind of sort of need to get moving. How how quickly? Sure. Yeah. You know. Um, now, I just got ask, That was kind of a lawyer answer. You got it right. <laughs> well, he's a good lawyer, so he's going to give uh, you a good answer. Um, uh, you know. Yes. There are um, at this point. Um, we do have um, a, a federal tax credit um, that is going to change at the end of 2016. So folks want to um, capitalize on this opportunity. You know, we tell we tell our clients and customers that um, you know there's probably not a better time to go solar than the next 18 months. Um, we don't know what's going to happen after 2016, but that tax credit will be reduced. Um, and I think you know. Um, uh, it just speaks to to timeliness, and you know, given the relatively robust nature of the of the permitting process here in Vermont, um, you know, some of the larger projects are going to take you know twelve ish months to kind of get all the way through to commissioning. Wow! So you know, the message today um, to uh, the businesses here at the VBSR conference is that if you're interested in doing this, either as a direct investment on your on your corporate balance sheet or as a participant in a group net metering uh, type arrangement right. where there's a third party owner uh, financing entity um, that would um, essentially own and operate the project and sign uh, the business or the institution on or the residential homeowner on as a customer, um, the deals are going to be about as good as they get for the next year or so. Mm -hmm. um, and we do see, you know, there's some talk going on in Washington as to, you know, the, the potential for either extending that tax credit or um, stepping it down more gradually or perhaps, um, you know, utilizing some safe harbor provisions. But at this point, um, you know, the plan is to get as much um, developed and constructed before the end of 2016 as possible. How, you know, what effect is it going to be to lose the subsidy? Is it is it the make or break for people on projects? It's not necessarily the make or break. Um, it just means, um, you know, people are, are, are going solar as, you know, for a number of different reasons. You know, we talk about the triple bottom line here at VBSR. And it really is that, uh, but you know, a strong pillar of that triple bottom line is the economic benefit. And right now, um, that tax credit combined with the cost of capital and combined with the cost of the equipment and the development services, um, you know, gives you a pretty good deal. Um, it's definitely not going to decimate the industry. Um, I think the industry has been planning for this uh, for a number of years. And I think um, there may be a slowdown, but I, you know, the the industry is not is not going away. Mm -hmm. So, if if residential people, you talked about bigger projects being a year plus. What's the you know what's the how quickly how quickly were you guys able to get your thing over at Denzi? Um That's a good question. I think for smaller projects, in particular residential projects, that's a, a very quick turnaround. I mean, matters of weeks uh, and, and not months or, or years. And uh, as far as our Dinsey project, um, I think we started talking to Chad late the end of 2013. And uh, within six months or so, we were able to have it fully commissioned. Um, and there's complexities with, with rooftop solar um, and uh, commercial buildings, and uh, we were Works through those, um, but I think that's the, the one of the takeaways is to have uh, the expertise of someone like Encore, who can 
bring you through the permitting process and uh, the construction process and the design of it um, because it's hard for a business when your expertise is providing whatever service you do, right. whatever you make, to have somebody in the industry who can help you hold your hand basically through the process. What's the what's the challenge of rooftop? Um, in Burlington, we had a wind load and weight load, so uh, we are we are on the water, so we're exposed yeah. to the wind, and it's also um, you have to make sure that your structure can can hold it. Um, but what I will say is that for our, our firm, it made a lot of sense both financially, but also for our, our social responsibility goals, um, because it is nice to know that we have uh, kind of a steady source of power, and what we're, we know our firm has been there for. 40 years and it will be there for for many more so it was it made a lot of sense to have a long-term commitment to solar mm -hmm. did you notice that while we were talking about solar that the sun actually came out there for about 45 seconds i thought that was pretty amazing well it's all about timing and yep. i think that's part of our focus is that the sun is shining now on solar in vermont and uh, we have about 18 months more to, to to really focus on it not to say that it's going to go away but i think things will change nice good answer yeah thank you both i appreciate it uh, that's uh, uh, we're talking about solar and this deadline that is uh, at the end of 2016. Let me uh, take a moment of your time to remind you about our good friend Mike Roussel at the Taylor Shop in Stowe's Lower Village, and you will find him. He's open on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. Opens his doors at 10 a.m. on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. So, yep, he's ready right now, and uh, he can uh, bring you uh, uh, up to speed when it comes to getting your clothes to look correctly. Nothing worse than when your clothes are too tight or too loose. So we encourage you to go on up and see Mike. He also does great repair work as well, too. Uh, and he has been in business now for, he has more than 50 years of experience, and he's only in his uh, early 60s. He's a pretty amazing guy. Stopping up and see him for uh, men's and women's clothing, and as, as I mentioned, too, of course, uh, also repair work as well. Uh, that's the Taylor Shop, and you will find them, and they are in Stowe's Lower Village. Let's give a nice home radio for my welcome right now to Rob Miller. Rob is the CEO at the Vermont state employees credit union v s e c u as well we frequently hear it and uh they're one of the newer members here at uh, vbsr thank you for joining us how are you this morning i'm doing great mark thanks for having me so why'd you join well vbsr we've been involved with vbsr for quite some time and uh it's very consistent with our mission as an organization and we wanted to step up our support of vbsr because we believe in what they do and it's very consistent with what we believe in and what we do so tell me about your social mission i read a little bit about you to give money back to the community tell me tell me what this what is the social mission of vsecu well first of all we are a member-owned um, uh, uh, local cooperative and so by our very nature and how we're structured um, we instill many of the characteristics of social responsibility just in how we're structured as, as a membership democratic organization um, on top of that we really want to uh, resemble that in, in the services that we provide and, and how we meet the needs of our members. So we focus on things like energy efficiency lending. Uh, we focus on, for example, our credit card having a lower interest rate uh, for in-state purchases so we can support local economies. Um, those types of things, the, the programs we do to support um, not necessarily student lending but debt forgiveness for student loans, uh, our community support in terms of what we give, what we give back to the community. So we, we try to reflect that in everything we do and at our core our mission 
is to improve the lives of Vermonters. And so we try to do that through trying to, to make, uh, improve their lives through meeting services and their basic needs, whether it's food, shelter, housing, those types of things. Tell me more about the, the governing structure. How are decisions made? Well, our board uh, of directors is democratically elected by our membership. We actually just had um, board elections. We had 11 um, candidates running for five positions. Um, we actually had over 28 applicants for those five positions, and we had a nominating committee that uh, put forward uh, 11 nominations. It's very unusual in our industry nationally, um, and it's a democratically elected board. They then, of course, uh, have the sole responsibility of hiring the, the CEO. Mm-hmm. Um, on a day-to-day basis, there's a management team that manages the day-to-day operations and, and charts a vision, um, but it's a membership organization where we are all owners of the credit union and the organization and uh, we elect uh, our board of directors that guide strategy and ultimately has the the ultimate fiscal responsibility well your races are more competitive than many in the vermont legislature they are we were um and you know we uh, the thought of having a democratically elected board would scare a lot of ceos to death we we embraced it uh, we thought it was great. Uh, we hope that we continue to have that kind of vibrancy in our, our uh, board elections going forward. Why do and, I- and our board thought it was fantastic, which is even more unusual. So why do you think there was so much interest in competition? Um, yeah, we've been trying to answer that question. I think we we are um, embracing social media to communicate with our membership. Huh. Um, that may have had an impact because we use social media to a greater extent in, in uh, reaching out and creating awareness around the elections this year than we have in years past. And I think that as we've grown, we've started as a credit union that was originally organized to support the state employees, which is why our name right. still has that component into it. But we've evolved to a statewide community-based credit union where anyone who lives and works in Vermont can be a member. And as we've evolved statewide, um, there's become more interest in, in what we're doing and, and I think more interest in, in being a part of it. Mm-hmm. Have you guys ever thought about changing your name and getting the Vermont State employees out of that? We have thought about changing our name. We've actually proposed a, a name change, I guess, to reinforce the democratic principles of our organization. It's been voted down twice by our membership. So uh, <laughs> it, it, it reinforces huh. the fact that our members are actively involved, they're actively engaged, and uh, despite our best efforts sometimes, they... Uh, they will um, tell management that they don't agree in the direction that we're going. Well, I understand they didn't want to have it called Miller's Credit. So what were the names they rejected? Um, It predates me, um, and I think that was part of it. Some of the names, I think, sort of lacked a Vermont context. Um, And and it may have been too early to to do that because we had just sort of expanded to a statewide charter, and I think that membership-wise, we still had a lot of ownership, Uh, and to this day, still have a lot of ownership. And uh, and our state employees, and there's a historical context there that many of our members truly believe in. So, um, not you know, I've, I'm uh, relatively new to the credit union. I've been there about uh, a year, um, and I've always said that's that, that's not the first thing on my list of things to do is to uh, reuse right. the name given, right. given the past right. experience. Yeah, understood. Uh, maybe you could call it Ben and Jerry's or that's something. Right. And that might that seems to have some appeal. <laughs> uh, so why do why would I join a credit union and take my money out of a bank? Well, I liken it to the analogy of of owning versus renting. Um, With putting your money in a credit union, you know that you're putting your money into a local organization where you're an owner. Um, You actually have a membership share in that organization. You have a voice um, in elections of of the leaders of the organization. Um, And that organization, because it's local and it's focused on your community, uh, tends to invest to a greater extent in the local community. So... um, 
it's it's a way to sort of feel more of a part and to recycle your money within the local community and to support local businesses and and to support one another. I mean, credit unions really are the um, the original peer-to-peer lenders. I mean, intuitively, right. um, it started as you know Mr. Smith depositing his money and that money then being lent out to. Uh, you know, Mr. Brown. Um, and that's essentially what we do today. We've gotten a lot more sophisticated about it, um, but we essentially um, are people helping people uh, become more successful and resilient together. How many members do you have at this point? We have just about 57,000 members at this wow. point. That, I mean, that's that's significant. Yeah, yeah, we're very proud of that. So, and Where do people get information? Website? Uh, they can go to www.vsecu.com, uh, and uh, we're also on social media, on Facebook as well. Uh, so we would encourage everyone to get information that way. Sterling can come into any one of our branches. We have nine throughout the state. Uh, we're headquartered in Montpelier, Vermont, just uh, as you come into the downtown area. Okay. Is there one in Chittenden County? Uh, there are two in Chittenden County, one in Williston in the Taft's Corners area, and then we have one downtown Burlington on Pearl Street uh, by uh, most people know where Bo's Restaurant is. Oh, right. Okay. Sure. I know. The, the, the old uh, floral shop, right? Uh, I believe so. Yeah, right next to Dunkin' Donuts and Bo's. If uh, Most people uh, across the no, street okay. from Leonardo's Pizza. Yeah, a little, little, <laughs> little different spot. Yeah. Actually, from uh, where my old friends had their radio deli right across the street there. Yeah. Hey, thanks for your time this morning. No Good problem. Luck. Thanks for having me. All right. Uh, Rob Miller is with uh, VSECU, where he is uh, the executive director there. We'll take a short break. We'll be back here. We're broadcasting live this morning at Vermont Businesses for Social Responsibility, their annual conference. We'll be back right after these important announcements. Jack Castellaneta Formula Nissan is saving people money by keeping things simple. But this month, you've really simplified. 0% financing for up to 72 months to qualify buyers on six of our most popular Nissan models. That's almost every vehicle on our lot. It doesn't get much simpler than that. Or much cheaper. Choose Altima, Sentra, Maxima, even Titan pickups and get 0% financing for 72 months. Pathfinder and Rogue get 0% for 60 months. Plus, your trade is worth more than ever right now. We sold a ton of quality pre-owned vehicles in April, and now we need good trades. Bring your car, truck, SUV to us. We'll make you an offer on it even if you don't buy from us. All the selection you need and 0% financing for up to 72 months on the most popular Nissans in America. It's the ride of your life sale going on right now at Formula Nissan. We're on the Barry Montpelier Road next to Pizza Hut and at FormulaNissan.com. Let us show you how easy it is to do business here. Financing on approved credit offers end May 31st. Advance Auto Parts knows what makes a car guy a car guy. It's the courage to take on the greasiest of jobs, the guts to stare down the belly of the beast and replace a radiator. It's fearlessness, and it has no patience for dead batteries. That's why Advance Auto Parts offers free battery testing. And if you buy a new Autocraft battery, we'll even install it for free so you can get back to your next big project. Advance Auto Parts, for guys who love getting under the hood. Most vehicles, most locations. See store for details. Now, kid, I know you look at me and think, man, that guy knows everything. And you're right, I do. But occasionally, even I get stumped. I know, hard to believe. But when I need help, I get it from Granger. Granger can solve just about anything, from finding the right products to advice on installation to troubleshooting. Granger gets me what I need right when I need it. When a guru needs a guru, who does a guru call? Guru calls Granger. Get it? Got it? Good. Call, click Granger.com or stop by. Granger. For the ones who get it done.
broadcasting live this morning from the Davis Center at the University of Vermont. It's the 25th anniversary of Vermont Businesses for Social Responsibility. And uh, we've had a variety of guests. I want to thank the uh, CEO, Ben and Jerry's, for joining us. I want to thank you for joining us as well, too. You can pipe in and join us on the program at any time at 244 244- 1777, that's our local number in central Vermont. Toll free, you can reach us at 877-291-8255. Let's give a nice home radio Vermont. Welcome this morning to Liz Schlegel. Liz is with the, uh, with, um, the Institute for Sustainable Communities and, uh, also joining us is, uh, Sherwood Smith, who is with the University of Vermont, where he is the Senior Executive Director of engagement and professional development. My goodness, that's one of the longest titles I've heard this week. Good morning, thank you. So what does that mean? Um, I report to the Vice President for Human Resources, Diversity and Multicultural Affairs, and I am responsible for the diversity and equity units and the professional development section of the university. So the Center for Honor Student Center, Women's Center, LGBT Center, Center for Cultural Pluralism, Lana Student Center, and then our training and professional development center is called Learning Services. So I oversee all of those parts of the university. Okay. And what's the goal of your job? What are you trying to do? As a higher ed institution, our goal is to help young people grow and learn and be successful in their careers, contribute as citizens. As a part of the institution, we want to help our staff to grow and develop professionally, to be committed to issues of diversity, critical thinking, and education, regardless of what their jobs are, and to support the diverse range of students, staff, and faculty that we have at the institution. Mm-hmm. How do you think the university is doing on that front? It's been a challenge, hasn't it? I think there are, what, 3,000 universities in the country. I don't know any of them that aren't challenged in doing the work. Um, I think it's always an ongoing process. If you're, if you're really committed to multiculturalism, then you're committed to change. My metaphor is if you've got a computer and the software changes, nobody's going back to the Olivetti typewriter. You spend more money, you get the new software, you get the new hardware. It's the same thing if you're committed to being on the cutting edge as far as students learning and in being on the cutting edge as far as diversity and professional development for faculty and staff. Mm-hmm. So, Liz, you think that diversity could be an actual or lack of diversity could be an actual advantage? Uh, diversity is an advantage. Lack of diversity is a big risk. And we're on a panel this afternoon talking about Vermont's economy needs more diversity. Certainly in our work around the country and around the world at ISC, we're focused on making sure that there's a diverse group of voices at the table because it makes a big difference with outcomes when you bring different kinds of thinking together and you have other people represented in the room. And so our economic discussion here this afternoon is about, you know, Vermont is one of the whitest states. The north, northern New England is the whitest part of the country. Yeah. It hurts us. It's hard to get people to move here because of that. There's just a survey that came out that the lack of cultural diversity is one of the reasons people leave. And we're leaving a lot of talent on the sidelines every time we do that. And honestly, as a small state, 
compete that's competing with the rest of the country and the rest of the world, we can't afford to leave talent. Mm -hmm. We have to be diverse and strong and smart. And there's stats to back that up, actually. Um, There's statistics about having women on executive boards and in executive leadership actually leads to better corporate returns. There haven't been as many studies about um, the uh, financial performance with racial diversity, but there's lots of studies around corporate governance, right, that businesses are run better when there's diversity on the board. There's um, better management of risk and far better governance. So the, the numbers are there. The stats are there to say this is a smarter way to do business. Now it's just about helping people change their habits, right, as Sherwood said, helping people yeah, behave it, differently. It's such a it's such a huge numbers issue, though. I mean, what you talk about and. And I think you're right. I mean, New England itself is just so white. I mean, 94.4, 94.3, 94.2. New okay. Hampshire, Vermont, Vermont is uh, Maine beats us. 94.4. I mean, you're talking about a huge societal problem. I mean, how yep. do you even how do you even start to chip away at it? I think uh, we talked about this when we were prepping for our panel, right? You have to be very intentional. You have to be on purpose, right? Purposeful at saying we're going to do this and it might make people uncomfortable. One of the things we talked about, um, Sherwood, I think you made this point, it's cold here. It's not just physically cold. People are slow to warm up, right? Vermonters are... uh, they value their privacy. They're not coming all over you like Southerners in terms of, how you doing? Welcome. You know, so when somebody <laughs> moves up here to take a job, right. it can be really hard to settle in and find your find your friends. You know, that's one of the challenges that we have. Yeah. What, can you talk more about that? How do you deal with that? I think if you're committed to it, it's multiple approaches. First of all, if you're really going to increase diversity, whether it's race, class, gender, sexual orientation, you have to work with the staff you have to increase their ability to be sensitive, caring, aware, self-reflective. You have to help them understand that there's a tendency in some organizations to say we're all the same and therefore we don't have culture. Actually, the reason you're all the same is because you have recruited people who have similar cultures. And so... The climate issue is one of when you bring somebody in who's different, whatever way they're different, Mm -hmm. whether they're different because of the way they grew up, whether they're different because they have a disability, whether they're different because of their race or religion, you have to create an atmosphere that's accepting of that difference. Um, I worked someplace once where they had a huge staff picnic every year. And they served hot dogs and sodas and everything. And they were traditional hot dogs. So they were all pork hot dogs. So what does that mean for your Jewish community? What does that mean for Muslim students? What does it mean for your vegetarians, right? And this was a big celebration of staff. It wasn't that they were trying to be disparaging to anybody. Right. So how do you build capacity so that when someone comes in, they feel like just because it's different and it's going to be a change, people aren't going to be, well, we've always done it this way and we don't want to change Right. is a piece of it. Right. Um, I think around issues of race and ethnicity, how do you build an awareness that those are issues for everyone, even if you have an all-white organization. You may have interracial adoptions. You obviously want to work with people outside of New England. Mm -hmm. So how do you build that capacity and sensitivity in a global economy? So part of it is capacity building with the staff you have. Part of it is what Liz talked about. How do you increase and attract diversity? There's a wonderful book called The Difference by Scott Page. And he literally uses 
mathematical equations to show all of the benefits of diversity. And this isn't new. There was a study in Israel in 1997 that showed that heterogeneous groups were more effective than homogeneous groups. Mm. So it's it's common practice that you the group think, even in terms of something as simple as group think from Myers-Briggs diversity, right. means that certain ideas never get raised or never get explored right. and are limiting to an organization's ability to evolve and grow. How do you educate people about that hot dog question? That's a fascinating example because, honestly, you know, I, I didn't at first blush think of that either. I'm thinking the hot dog party, and, but you're right. I mean, think about the number of people that would view that so differently. You could be, you know, allergic to gluten. You could be allergic to dairy in the buns. I mean, it means taking the time to ask the question. Pick an organization and say to an organization, all right, how many languages do the people in your organization speak? Regardless of the visible diversity, how many languages? How many places have they traveled? What's the capacity in your organization to effectively engage in difference? If you're not even curious enough to ask that question, right. then you're missing out. You're not helping people think, what are the ways in which, even though we may all work for the same company, we may even all look the same. There's difference, and that's valued valued added not a liability not something i need to hide not something that is going to be disparaged because well we all do it this way mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. anything you want to add to that i just was thinking that uh you know the the unconscious bias piece is really how you have to start right helping people understand that whether they mean to or not they have bias it's just how people get formed, how their opinions get formed, and you have to uncover it. One of the experiences that we had um, with planning the conference, getting the proposals in, I'm on the program committee for VBSR, and we had folks who sent in proposals for all male panels, right? All white male panels. Mm -hmm. And VBSR is a pretty progressive organization. And I got to be the person who would call people and say, hey, buddy, that's a great panel, and we're going to go with it, but I got a little tip for you. Yeah. You know, we're not going to put up four white men to talk about anything. It doesn't matter what it is. You have to have some diversity and look hard for folks who aren't like you. No one did that on purpose, right? No one set out to say, I'm going to exclude women or I'm going to exclude, you know, small businesses and only talk to large businesses. Nobody gets up in the morning, really, you know, at least in the Vermont business culture and says, I'm going to exclude. But you have to help them recognize that. The other thing is that I just want, you know, that you're talking about the, the, Sherwood was talking about the staff piece of bringing people together to talk about this stuff. My organization has an annual retreat, and the first year we started working in Bangladesh, our planners didn't realize that it was during Ramadan. And that was awful, right, to watch my colleagues not eat all day. You know, we do this great stuff with food. We have, I, I have never felt so terrible in my life. Mm. You know, it was just because uh, it, it was not on their radar, right? The, the folks who were planning the thing did not have that cultural experience and it didn't occur to them to ask. And we're an international organization, you know, so that it happened, right? It can happen to anybody. Yeah. Just, yeah. You know, so no, that that's was a, a big that, learning experience. And that's you know. a good example you give here of what happened at VBSR, you know, with the, the, with the panel. 244-1777 is our local number in central Vermont. You can also reach us on our toll-free lines at 877-291-8255. We've been broadcasting live today.
from the Davis Center at the University of Vermont. Let's uh, we're going to uh, take a call here, Sherwood. I'm going to have you put you on, put those on for me, please. And uh, we're going to go to uh, Cabot. Uh, Tony, how are you this morning? Thanks for calling. I'm doing well. How are you doing? Not too bad. I've got a, I've got a lousy cold, but other than that, I have a question Ooh, for man, your you. Guests. Do. Uh, yeah. The uh, how they you were talking about a number of uh, anticipated goals and uh, things benefits of, of this as an approach, of, you know, as something to be studied. So help me understand how you how you know whether or not any particular goal has been met. Are there you know, is there some, uh, is it an issue of construct validity that you, you have to overcome, or how do you go about doing it? All right. I'm not sure I understood the question. Hopefully you did. Did you understand it? So, so there are okay, if you got qualitative goal, or quantitative how do you know you if you achieve that? Okay, I think thanks, one of the Tony. easiest things people usually do is just count bodies. Um, are you successfully engaging communities you haven't? How are you successfully reaching, I don't like the term, but quote, underrepresented or marginalized communities that you normally wouldn't and building a market in that way? So there's numbers. Are, is your staff physically different? Then there are behavioral questions, numbers of complaints, types of ideas. Um, Liz's example, the, what are the unconscious ways your company has been eliminating or not representing people and are those going away or are they becoming more common? Then there's simply the question, are you moving product in areas that you weren't before? Then you can start looking at the capacity of internalized understanding and are people actually using this? Now this is actually in, in marketing, this is when you sit people down and you have a confederate in the room with a box of cereal and you kind of see what the people do with it. Well, you sit people in a room with examples that might represent sort of bias or you put two confederates in the room and they say something biased. Do people respond? Do they respond in effective ways? Can they actually understand what might be the cause of the bias? So you can look at attitudes, you can look at behaviors, you can look at people's ability to teach others, and you can start to look at the bottom lines. Companies look at their economics. Are they reaching those new markets? Are they getting communities that they normally wouldn't engage to look at their product or use their product? You know, I can uh, hear some people saying that, you know, maybe you're getting involved with um, the word quotas and, and doing it sort of diversity for the sake of diversity. How, how would you respond to that? Well, my question is there have always been quotas for stuff, uh, first of all. Um, I'm at a university and we look at alumni and most of the, especially if you're in an Ivy League, there's this whole focus on if you're a legacy and there's special benefits to that. Um, there are quotas, if you're in sales, you've got quotas. So I think you have to be specific about quotas. I don't think I'm talking about, um, to use a political idea right now, Hillary Clinton is running, imagine Condoleezza is running. You have two women running for office. Are they the same? Obviously not on a whole bunch of social political ways. So getting a body in the room does mean you have representative difference. It doesn't necessarily mean you've changed attitudes, beliefs, or values. As far as quotas, I could ask the quota, using this example, um, what's the quota for Caucasians? Is it a is it 100% quota? 95% quota? Mm -hmm. I think the issue is that if you're committed and you're in a community that is wanting to engage internationally, what's the percentage of people you have that can do that effectively? 
That's that would be something you should be measuring. If that's a quota, then it's a good quota. I think quotas in terms of you need X number isn't the point unless you're doing a quota that, like you said, you're in a marketing firm and we need X, we want to increase our percentage in this market by some number. So I think you need to be really clear about what you mean when you say quotas. Usually people are talking about affirmative action when they talk about quotas and affirmative action hasn't been about quotas. Affirmative action says that if you're in a job market and you're hiring engineers and 10% of the engineering pool of new graduates is women and you have zero women, then there's a problem because the potential quota you could have is you should at least have an applicant pool that's representative of what's out there. And that's all affirmative action has ever said in terms of it's never guaranteed hiring, unfortunately, I think in some ways. Mm-hmm. It's just said that there should be a representative pool and it looks at what's the pool of people out there in a particular field or profession. Mm-hmm. That's not a hiring quota. It's looking at what's What's the population out there? Mm-hmm. Has the has the uh, the student population has the faculty population changed significantly in terms of diversity since you've been here? I came in '95, and in terms of racial and ethnic diversity, we were at about four percent. Um, the incoming class now is over ten percent, so there's a pretty substantial change. Um, we've doubled our international student population. Um, Faculty numbers are up. I don't have the exact numbers. We've always done a good job of representing the community and staff. I think our biggest challenge has been getting that representation at the highest levels of our staff. Um, So, and Burlington, you know, is an outlier. Um, Over 30% of our high school students in Burlington wouldn't identify as students of color. Mm-hmm. Um, right. So we have a refugee resettlement program here. So we have lots of immigrants. So Burlington is a bit of an outlier compared to most of the rest of the, you know, area of Vermont, especially when you go to the north. So I think we have a higher responsibility in terms of that rep, that piece. And, you know, UVM has a high number of out-of-state students. So if we're not going to recruit students' diverse diversity, we're not going to get the students we we want and we need. Yeah. Um, Boy, I would think, has there been any noticeable effect of the, the number of different ethnic groups and nationalities here in Burlington? Has that sort of now been, have, have all those folks now been here long enough that that's starting to filter up into the university? Um, I think it has filtered up in the university, but we're talking about a business conference here. Go downtown Burlington. Part of the attraction of Burlington is look at the shops we have, look at the restaurants we have, look at the types of products, whether you go to the mall, that you can buy surreys, that you can buy African clothes. You can, you can, people are coming here from all over the world or all over the U.S. and we still have the traditional, you know, you can go up and see the round barn. There's still, you know, Holsteins and Jersey's out in the pastures, but people are coming to a city, they want opportunities to do the things they do in their own towns. And we have those. I mean, we have a huge variety of restaurants and shops that we wouldn't have if it wasn't for this community that's stepping up and making entrepreneurial efforts and getting the kind of support they need. Yeah. And I think the university ties into that in the sense that um, we have a, one of the benefits to the university, we have a huge festival for Ramadan here. And it, it draws people from all over the state. You know, we pack a ballroom with 400 people that the um, Southeast Asian Student Indian Student Association mm-hmm. puts on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. 
And then Liz has, you know, a meeting in the middle of some conference in the middle of it. Well, I think it's important for people to recognize this is good for business, right? It adds to the ability to come up with new ideas, to push your markets, to change the way you think. And you always need new ideas at the table to innovate, to change, to grow. It's not going to be the way it was 50 years ago. And Vermont can't be holding on to it's just one way. We're really innovative as a business organization at VBSR. We're really innovative as a state. This is part of how we innovate. It's not easy, right? We have to work to make it welcoming. We have to work to push ourselves out of our traditional ways of being. But it's good for Vermont. Your biggest goal of today would be what? To... Um, Maybe make people a little uncomfortable, make them think a little bit about what they're doing or not doing in their own organizations and help give them some tools to do things. Listening to locally owned and operated 96.1 WDEV FM Warren FM 96.5 serving Barry AM 550 WDEV Waterbury Montpelier serving the Northeast Kingdom at 101.9 FM in Island Pond. It's 11 o'clock. AP Radio News. I'm Rita Foley. We still don't know why an Amtrak train derailed last night in Philadelphia, killing six people and injuring hundreds. But we may be getting closer to finding out. They've recovered the event recorders, similar to a plane's black boxes. The NTSB's Robert Sumwalt. The uh, event recorders themselves can give you information about the speed of the train, any uh, brake applications, any throttle uh, applications that the engineer could have made, horn, bell. Uh, it, it can give us a lot. So that will be key to this investigation. Former Pennsylvania Congressman Patrick Murphy was on that train. Vibration and all of a sudden it tipped to the left and then violently to the right when it came to its side and unfortunately I was on the left hand side of the, of the train so I, everyone on the side just flew over and I frankly landed on my head. He's an Iraq war veteran who said the very first thing he did after that was to check his body parts to make sure they were all still there. He was on the Today Show this morning. Searchers are still looking for that U.S. Marine Corps helicopter that disappeared yesterday while delivering earthquake relief supplies in Nepal. Our Sagar Magani has the latest from the Pentagon.